the Vanguard Podcast. I'm Gavin. And I'm Zach. And we're so pleased to welcome to the show today, Michaela Wilkes, a primary challenger to Stinney Hoyer in Maryland's 5th Congressional District. How are you doing today, Michaela? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. Cool, cool. Well, um, something I wanted to start off with in this interview and, and just gauge your opinion on a little bit is just your uh, opinion on the job performance of the progressive members that are already in Congress. Obviously, you've branded yourself as a progressive and you support a lot of the you know, policy positions that one would find you know, members of the squad championing. Um, but I'm wondering if you uh, think that they've been effective thus far in pushing the Biden administration or the party leadership in the House to the left. Uh, if so, can you potentially point to any strategies you think that they've exhibited, uh, which you would emulate? Uh, and if not, um, what methods of applying pressure would you potentially utilize um, if you were to get into the legislature and have an opportunity uh, to potentially influence the direction of legislation? Yeah, so um, I think that the members of the uh, of the squad um, in Congress, I think that they're doing, you know, the best that they can do, um, given that they are very small in numbers. Um, if I were to be elected, I think something that's really important is, you know, as an organizer is to not to forget that you still have to keep organizing. The organizing doesn't stop. You just go from organizing on the ground to organizing your colleagues. Um, and so that's a strategy that I would like to implement. You know, should I become elected? You know, you have to meet with your colleagues and garner that support um, so that when you go to introduce legislation or um, if you want to go and oppose legislation, that you have that infrastructure and you have that solidarity with your colleagues moving forward. Um, and I think that that's maybe something that may be lacking um, in Congress amongst the squad. Um, you know, you can't just organize um, within, you know, those who um, have similar ideologies, but you have to also try to reach those others that may be more moderate or centrist. Yeah, I, I'm wondering what your reaction is to kind of the, I guess the, it seems like a multiple failures so far of the Biden administration. They, you know, the Democrats in that uh, they ran largely on this promise of $2,000 checks. They immediately uh, dropped that down to 1400 Now it's uh, March, there's, you know, they talked about having that immediately after the uh, runoffs in Georgia. That didn't happen. You know, we still haven't seen those checks. Uh, true, it was passed in the House, but uh, in its current form that it was passed in the House, it, it's definitely not going to pass in the Senate. Uh, then you also have the fact that today we found out that the $15 minimum wage is not going to be mm -hmm. um, may, uh, may, passed as part of a package through the Senate, uh, thanks to eight senators, all Democrats. Uh, or well, 58 senators, eight of the Democrats that we kind of anticipated. And I'm just wondering how that changes your strategy as somebody who's running uh, as a as a Democrat, somebody who's running on these progressive uh, platforms. Does it make it harder for you to make your case uh, to people if they say, well, you guys said that last time and then we elected you and, you know, nothing happened. The Dems always say that they want to give us stuff and then they never do. Um, you know, it's always just they always look for a scapegoat and then they pretend like they're doing right now with this minimum wage that Kamala Harris couldn't just override the Senate parliamentarian's decision, um, you know, and, and get this passed with 51 votes. Um, but, you know, how does that impact the way that you strategize and how does that impact the way that you talk to voters who are, you know, probably rightly pissed off at the Democratic administration right now? 
Yeah, I think to that, I say what we're witnessing is business as usual. Um, this is how it always is. You know, every time there is a campaign season or election time, they fight for our votes and then they get our votes and then we see the same thing. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I am running for Congress, because Hoyer is one of those people um, who's been in Congress for, you know, almost 40 years. He's serving his 20th term. Um, and nothing is changing. And the thing is, we have to change who's representing us. And unfortunately, I think that that's what it's going to come down to, um, because we just don't have enough progressive members, um, you know, true progressives, true leftists um, in Congress to pass, you know, the legislation, um, you know, that we that we're fighting so hard for. Um, and so we just have to get over that roadblock. Um, and start replacing those folks. And then also, you know, starting to organize. Um, and so I think that there's kind of maybe like a 50-50 of how that affects our strategy. Um, because I think that it actually could benefit us. I mean, we have the Democratic trifecta, we have the House, we have the Senate, we have the White House. Um, and the fact that we aren't seeing the change that we need now isn't because they can't do it, it's because they won't. Um, and that's a really good point to point out with people in the community. Absolutely. Well, um, you're running against Denny Hoyer, as you mentioned, um, one of the most powerful Democrats in the House. And a few weeks ago on our podcast, we talked to Mayor Colin Byrd, who's another progressive that's also running um, for the seat against Hoyer. You've both been endorsed by Marion Williamson. And I'm just wondering if you have any concerns about the vote being split in this district. Um, to my knowledge, Maryland does not have ranked choice voting um, or anything to that effect. And I'm just wondering how um, both of your uh, visions could, could potentially um, maybe collaborate to help one another out instead of uh, splitting the vote and allowing Hoyer to continue his um, rule over this uh, district, which is you know far over overstate its welcome, uh, I imagine. Yeah, so I've actually had a conversation with Colin Bird, um, and we have a mutual agreement that, you know, during a certain time this year, um, we will be consolidating because the main point is that Hoyer is out. <laughs> um, that is the number one priority. Um, but there's just a lot of things that, that are going to factor into that as far as metrics and um, definitely uh, redistricting that's going to be coming up this year. Um, and so it's going to look a little bit different this time. Yeah, that's fair. Well, um, this is your second time running. Uh, for anyone that's not familiar, you also ran the last cycle. And despite coming up short, I was really impressed by your campaign, bringing a lot of new uh, and interesting ideas to the table, um, really, you know, forcing Hoyer to answer for some of his policies, I think, you know, putting that pressure on him to uh, go leftwards, hopefully. And, and that's obviously something that's maybe not talked about enough. But even when candidates aren't successful, uh, the first or even second time they run, they certainly um, do succeed in applying that pressure to, um, you know, fill in the blank corporate Democrat. And, and certainly with a, you know, person like Steny Hoyer in a, in a high leadership position in the party, it's important to um, have that pressure continually applied. And um, it's a good thing that there's candidates like you that are out there willing to do this um, unsung work that, you know, frankly has a very low success rate, but you're willing to do it anyway and bring these, uh, you know, ideas to the table, bring attention to them. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, what your strategy is going to be this time around. Obviously, 
um, last time around, it was a whole different, you know, country we were living in. Um, you were able to door knock more. Uh, but since this uh, election isn't for, uh, you know, tw until 2022, I was wondering if you're, you know, hoping um, that the vaccine has, you know, been properly introduced to society to the point where you can knock on doors. Um, or are you planning a more robust uh, or innovative digital strategy uh, to get attention? I'm just wondering what you're thinking as far as kind of overcoming the media bias and, and certainly the name recognition and seniority bias that someone like, you know, Cindy Hoyer is going to be wielding against an insurgent progressive such as yourself. Yeah, so um, that's a very good question. So this time around, we definitely plan on building on the momentum and the movement that we started in 2020. Um, and to be honest, it haven't it hasn't stopped. The work has been continuous. Um, so that's number one. We're also uh, concentrating on trying to fundraise as much as possible as soon as possible. Um, one of the lessons that we learned from 2020 was that we got we got support, but the only thing is we didn't get enough support um, as we needed early on, um, especially as it pertains to fundraising. For instance, in the last, I'll say the last three or four weeks of the campaign we raised $200,000, which was the entire amount of what we had um, raised throughout the entire cycle. And during that time, we can see the, the influx of votes and the margin of which Hoyer was winning getting smaller and smaller to the point of election day where we won in-person votes. But that came from having that support and getting that surge of volunteers, that surge of endorsement, that surge of uh, fundraising. And so um, at this point, we are concentrating heavily on fundraising. Um, we don't know what it's gonna look like because of COVID. We are hoping that we can 100% go back to knocking on doors, um, but we are preparing ourselves in case we need to run a very strong digital campaign. Um, but good for us that our campaign started off 100% virtual. Um, and so we are completely in our element at this point. Um, you know, speaking a little bit about the you know, different country that we've been living in uh, since the last time around, right? This, uh, we've obviously, you know, the entire nation's been economically and um, emotionally and physically ravaged by uh, the COVID-19. And, and it's honestly, it's just, you know, salted a lot of wounds that were already open and gaping beforehand, right? And I'm thinking primarily about the housing issue and the housing crisis that our country's been experiencing really for decades. But it's culminated and compounded into such a, such a devastating, um, issue that it can no longer really be ignored. And that's why we're finally starting to hear about it at least a little bit in the way that we are. Um, you know, I read a statistic the other day that there were two, two million families in America that were at least three months behind on rent, um, often more than three months behind on rent. And, you know, if the bottom falls out, right, that's just going to be two million homeless families. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, uh, if you could talk about your strategy to provide homes for everyone and, and kind of uh, also a little bit about the way that this is, this uh, you know, real issue, this, uh, you know, homelessness pandemic that we're having even before the COVID pandemic uh, arrived, how that's presenting itself in your district and just some of the ideas that you have to, uh, to solve that because in the richest country in the world, you know, we shouldn't have anybody that's homeless. I mean, this is a problem. It, it costs us more money uh, criminalizing homelessness. Um, you know, sending police officers to destroy tent towns where people are just huddling to, in the most just like it, it's almost like it going into a third world country and destroying slums because you don't think that you think they're unsightly. I mean, it's really that kind of like soulless, just unconscionable behavior that we're doing. And it's actually less effective than just solving the problem. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. 
Yeah, so we actually have what we call um, a homes guarantee. Um, and our plan, what it does is it fully fund, it fully funds the Section 8 program um, mm -hmm. because as it stands, I believe only one in four people who apply for Section 8 actually get it. Um, and to do this, it would only cost $40 billion um, to do it. They could have actually put this in the stimulus package. It would have made great sense. Um, it costs less than um, committing acts of war and buying weapons for acts of war, $40 billion. Um, but what it does is um, it expands, it also expands the eligibility requirements uh, for those that are able to be on Section 8 um, to include undocumented people as well. Um, and so this is something that would essentially end homelessness um, mm -hmm. because the problem is the long wait periods, which is because the program is underfunded. The problem is enough vouchers because the program is underfunded. The problem is we can't get enough people on the program because the program is underfunded. Um, and so if we can fully fund it and also change the requirements to be on the program that can help uh, that can help us to tackle homelessness. And what we're seeing now is the highlighting of the issue that we have already had with um, housing insecurity within our communities. Um, and so what we're seeing now is people losing their jobs, not able to afford their rent. And then we're also seeing a lack of tenant rights. Um, and so that's a whole nother issue um, as it pertains to housing, because we have these ending of the moratorium on evictions. And so people are able to be evicted. Landlords are able to, um, landlords are able to, um, to do uh, predatory acts against tenants. And we don't really have, at least in my district and in my state, we don't really have any landlord or tenant laws that you know more so favor the tenant. Um, and I know because I went through this with my landlord during the pandemic, I was threatened with eviction um, and had to fight that. Uh, and so you know, the, the problem is very multifaceted, uh, but I think a huge part of it is funding, uh, fully funding the Section 8 program and then expanding the eligibility, uh, the eligibility requirements. That's an interesting point and something that I, I hadn't actually heard uh, proposed. We hear a lot of talk about obviously the need to provide housing for everyone. Uh, I think that's the first time I'd heard a proposal to expand the Section 8 uh, housing uh, program. So yeah, that sounds uh, like, a, like a good idea to me. Uh, one of the other uh, questions I, I did have for you, Michaela, and uh, obviously, you know, with Joe Biden taking, you know, the presidency, this is a, you know, kind of a difficult thing to unpack but you know over the summer there was obviously the you know overwhelming uh, demand by americans from coast to coast in uh, the wake of the george floyd and brianna taylor murders by the uh, the respective police departments um and a, a sweeping demand for not just justice for those individuals but justice for uh the people who came before them and uh, also a, a swift defunding of the police department i mean these were explicit terms that were made in the largest civil rights demonstration i mean all across the country, all 50 states, people were making these very explicit, very clear demands, um, you know, and it was basically just shrugged off, uh, both by uh, Donald Trump, who was president at the time, and now Joe Biden and, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, who have since taken the administration. Uh, obviously, Joe Biden uh, was the author and uh, champion of the 1994 crime bill. Um, you know, which ruined the lives of, of so many Americans and made us the most incarcerated country on earth. Um, you have uh, a plan to achieve transformative justice. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how that plan came about and, and walk people through what that is. 
Yeah, so my plan for transformative justice comes from personal experience um, and also just witnessing what's happening in our communities and realizing that the system isn't broken, the system is fixed. It's working the exact way that it's intended to. Um, and so when we say defund the police, um, what that essentially is, is working towards transitioning the way that we do policing. Um, and so when we defund the police, it's saying that more police does not equate to less crime. Um, police do not prevent crime, they're reactionary. Uh, but what does prevent crime is mental health resources, equitable education, housing security, food security, security, um, et cetera. And so when we are investing funds into these, into these industries or these entities that are meant to protect us, and that's not what they're doing, then those funds should be reallocated elsewhere. Um, and so we want to, you know, get that message across. And I understand, you know, a lot of elected officials um, and, and, and others may be afraid of the term defund the police, but it's important for us to explain what that actually means. Um, you know, because it's, you know, it's our duty to um, educate the community on why we're doing what we're doing and what this means and to and for us to control the narrative and not the mainstream media to control the narrative and not for um, centrist or, you know, uh, centrist Democrats to control the narrative. Um, and so what we want to do is, oh, you have it up here. Uh, but what we want to do is abolish all private prisons. We want to end cash bail. Um, we want to create a an actual criminal justice system because we don't have a criminal justice system. We have a criminal legal system um, that's focused more so on um, incarceration instead of rehabilitation, instead of restorative practices. Um, a huge hot topic um, in our district right now is the removal of SROs from um, from the public school system. Um, and a lot of the work that I've been doing on the ground since the last campaign is working to dismantle the school to prison pipeline because of my own, um, my own experiences. Um, and I'm not sure if people know this, but in yeah, one- Could you talk time, about that? Yeah. So, um, so when I was a youth, I was incarcerated for truancy, um, for skipping, for uh, running away from home. My aunt passed um, in the Pentagon uh, on September 11th. And so just dealing with that grief, um, I wasn't given the resources that I needed. I was put on probation. Um, and for every one day of school I missed, or even if I missed a class, if I was late to a class, that can lay me 10 days um, in juvenile detention. That's so barbaric. That's fucking crazy. Like, and I can't even believe that. And Steny Hoyer has actually signed on to every single crime bill that has ever been written. And in one of the crime bills, um, they actually it actually included funding to increase the presence of SROs in public schools, um, which is another way uh, that I've been directly impacted by the poor policy uh, the poor policy choices of Steny Hoyer. Um, but we need a criminal justice system that works for everyone. Um, and to be honest, um, and to be frank, if it were up to me, I would burn it all down and start over again. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask, could you consider yourself a prison abolitionist? Um, yes. Yes. Well, Mikhail, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, on an adjacent issue, um, to your, um, personal experience, um, obviously we hear the Democrats use language all the time about how they, um, are in favor of reforming criminal justice. And, and often we see, uh, the the leaders of the party kind of extend um, support to movements like Black Lives Matter, for example, yet um, quite hypocritically, they have elevated 
Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who, as Zach mentioned, um, wrote the crime bill and, and, you know, Kamala Harris, who was a notorious prosecutor. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have any reaction to the Democratic Party um, elevating these figures who have, who have not been part of the solution whatsoever. In fact, they've been architects of the problem in, in the quite literal sense. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have any solution to that or not solution necessarily, but um, were you to get into Congress, uh, what kind of solutions would you be um, proposing and how would you be trying to force the conversation to your uh, side? Because right now we have a lot of Democrats that, like I said, they use the right language sometimes, but they're really not there when it comes to these policies. And, and really, they just want to signal uh, the support for these, you know, cultural issues without actually getting behind the policies uh, such as defunding the police and reallocating those resources that are so vitally needed. And I'm just wondering what your plan is if you get in there uh, to maybe potentially point out and expose some of that hypocrisy uh, and to be that voice that we need um, to, to, to just be to just be identifying this problem as it is. Yeah, I think it's important that we not just focus on the crime aspect part of things, um, because crime is only a symptom of so many other things. Um, I think the approach to real transformative justice is multifaceted, um, because no one just wakes up one day and is, and is like, I'm going to go rob someone, or I'm going to go steal $20 out of the cash register from where I work. To me, crime is an act of desperation because of lack of food security, housing security, affordable health care. I mean, we even see it in movies. How many movies are based on people committing crimes because they have a loved one that needs medical attention? I mean, we see this, like the movie John Q, um, but this is the reality that we're in. So if we can start to have that conversation about how the issue of criminal justice is multifaceted, it is so much more than defunding the police. It is so much more than uh, reforming our courts. It It's involving, you know, healthcare that is provided to everyone. It's providing jobs that have livable wages, which by the way, $15 isn't good enough. Um, it's about making sure that people have an equitable education, that we're properly funding our schools. It's about making sure that we have affordable housing. It's about ending the predatory practices that exploit working class and working poor people. Um, and so if we can have that conversation and talk about it from that standpoint, um, because the thing is, we can change the system, we can change the, the criminal legal system. But if we don't work on the other disparities that we have in our communities, and we don't work on these other issues, nothing will fundamentally change. And if the goal is to change things fundamentally, then we have to take that multifaceted approach. And as someone like if I were to make it to Congress, I would 100% hold my colleagues accountable. Um, I'm the type of person where I don't hold my tongue. And I'm an activist and an organizer first. Um, and so my first priority is liberation. Um, and so anybody that seems to get in the way of that is a problem. Um, and so we just have to remind them of who they work for. They work for us. They represent us. Um, and once it gets to a point where you are no longer representing us, then you don't deserve that seat at the table. Um, and I think that that should be made, you know, very loud and clear um, when that's happening. 
Well, I think that, you know, to be frank, I think that's a frustration that I think a lot of people have already reached with uh, people that they thought would, you know, go into Congress and be activists. And of course, I'm referring to members of the squad who made promises like I'm an activist first, not a politician. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering just to kind of gauge that, uh, how would you have responded at the beginning of this year when, you know, a lot of people were saying, OK, we we have leverage to you know, hold up the uh, nomination of Nancy Pelosi at the Speaker of the House for the Speaker of the House, somebody who not only doesn't support, but actively stands against almost every single thing that they ran on. Um, and for some reason, we were supposed to do that because if we didn't, uh, they, the $15 an hour minimum wage wouldn't pass. Go fucking figure. Right. Um, so I'm just asking, uh, you know, how would you have reacted to that? And, and do you think that, uh, you know, they made the they made a, the wrong move by just going ahead and, and supporting Nancy Pelosi without getting anything in return? Yeah, I would say I would not have voted for Nancy Pelosi. Um, and even like I understand, you know, people people hear it all the time. I'm an activist first, but I'm not only an activist, I'm directly impacted, which means mm -hmm. that I don't have time to play. I don't have time to play and I don't have time for people to play with me. Um, and so that is where I'm coming from. And of course, you know, Nancy Pelosi and, and Democratic leadership would have to earn my support just because you are elected doesn't change that. It don't change nothing. Um, and so I would still have that same attitude, um, you know, to the question of, you know, if they were wrong for, for doing so. I won't necessarily say that they were right or they were wrong, um, but I will say that, you know, I wouldn't have made that decision. Um, and to be frank, um, Nancy Pelosi probably would have still been the Speaker of the House, you know, regardless of 100%. if, regardless if they would have yeah. voted. For, for them sure. or not. But, uh, yeah, on a principle thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but it's just like, as it pertains, right, to the principle of it, no, I would not have voted for it. Sure. You don't need my, you don't need, you know, you don't need my specific vote to become the Speaker of the House. Well, uh, Michaela, yeah, well, I think that's, that's awesome. And oh, sorry, Gavin. I didn't... Oh, yeah. Uh, essentially, I think we we're probably going to say the same thing, which is that that was a, a really good answer, the kind of answer yeah. that I would want to hear from my elected representative. Certainly, I, I don't think it should be all that big of an ask of, of someone who's running on policies of a very explicit nature uh, to then, you know, find themselves in an oppositional nature to someone else in DC uh, that doesn't support those policies. It, it seems like common sense to me. Um, and here at the Vanguard, we are obviously spotlighting, uh, you know, progressive insurgent candidates that are on the vanguard of, of leftist thought. And, and certainly, you know, your answers today, Michaela, I think qualify you in that category. So we, we really, you know, have been so impressed by what we've heard today. And uh, we think you're really boldly identifying the problems, fighting for the correct solutions. And I genuinely hope that uh, you're able to um, overcome these, you know, barriers that are put up, put up to progressive candidates and, you know, succeed this time around and, and defeat Stinney. Yeah, yeah anything to get Stenny the fuck out of there. And also just to echo uh, exactly what uh, Gavin said, I think that that's exactly uh, the kind of thing that I, uh, I would be hoping for in my representative. And also uh, just uh, progressives, I think, across the board need to remember that it's not just uh, Joe Manchin. It's not just Kirsten Cinema, It's not just, uh, you know, these, you know, neoliberal uh, scapegoats that can exercise their power. Right. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it's and yeah, OK, we only have one person in the Senate. Fine. But the Congress, if you if you add 10, 15 squad members together, that's a big that's a big bulk of, of Congress. Right. And that means something, especially after, uh, 
you know, the Nancy Pelosi, the, the stalwart leader that she yep. is kind of bungled the uh, House races in 2020. So it, it narrowed the divide and actually gave the squad more power effectively. So I, I think uh, I think that you're you're definitely uh, uh, have the, the, the correct strategy in mind. And we really look forward to uh, watching the rest of your uh, campaign and having you back on the show and uh, uh, as the as things unfold. Yeah, thank you. And to what you just said, I say we primary every single one of them. Yeah, hell yeah. And keep doing it until we succeed because enough is enough. Yeah, absolutely. Where can people go to support you, Michaela? And if they're maybe not in your district, can they still uh, help out? Can they still do phone calls? Or what, what, what's it look like at this stage in the campaign? Obviously, it's still pretty early. Yeah, of course. Um, so if people want to get involved, definitely go to our website, MichaelaWilkes.com. Um, you can uh, donate your time um, or you can donate your money because we are grassroots. We don't take any uh, money from any corporate interests or any super PACs. Um, if you don't live in the district or anywhere close by, join our team, volunteer with us. Um, you can help us phone bank. Um, if phone banking isn't your thing, we have something what we call a grassroots cash crew, uh, which is where we give volunteers their own act blue link and they can circulate that within their networks. Um, and we turn it into like a competition. It's really fun. Um, but it's something that only takes a second. Like you can just copy and paste the text, send it to five friends and bam, you raise like a hundred dollars. Um, so something really fun and, and something quick. So yeah, but if people want to get involved, those are the best ways. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, yeah, we've included those links in the description of this video. So anyone watching right now, make sure to check out those links, check out um, Michaela's wonderful platform, really in-depth policies, a lot of specifics that you just don't find on other campaign websites, even um, progressives yeah. uh, often $15 don't have... an hour for prison workers, yeah. uh, reasonable rates for prison phone calls. Uh, you know, you pointed out on your uh, website in Kentucky, it's like $5 to yeah. Uh, for 15 minutes on the phone with your loved ones. When, meanwhile, you know, you make like less than a dollar a fucking hour if you're working. Yeah. Uh, so you would, you know, do the math on that because I, I can't do that right now on the fly, but yeah. not great. So uh, yeah, just kind of thorough, uh, thoughtful policy uh, on the website. Everybody make sure to check that out. Yeah. And thanks so much, Michaela. We really do appreciate your time today and uh, wish you the best of luck in this um, race. We stand in solidarity and, you know, have a great one. Yeah, yeah take thank care. you. Y'all too. Take care and be safe out there.